Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors, episode 174, and the seventh instalment of all things 16th century women. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Throughout August and September, we've been exploring the lives of 16th century women through a series of podcast episodes here on Talking Tudors and video lectures over on my YouTube channel. While all the content is free, I ask that you consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. This would mean the world to me. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Before we continue, I'd like to thank the sponsor for this episode, Clio. Clio is a sensory history company that recreates the fragrances of the past. Partnering with celebrated historians, scholars, museums, and members of the history community, Clio creates truly immersive, multi-sensory experiences. So, in a way, you can travel back in time using one of your most powerful senses. This coming fall season, Clio will be launching a series of new releases that I think you'll be very excited about. Visit clio.global to explore the latest collection, which features more than 3,000 years of fascinating history. And, of course, it even includes the Tudors. And just for Talking Tudors listeners, Clio is offering you 10% off your first order. Use the code TALKINGTUDORS at checkout. Now, back onto our Patreon family. When you join Patreon, in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. September's prize is a one-year subscription to Tudor Places magazine. You can find out more about them at TudorPlaces.com. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 17th and 18th of September, I'll be chatting to historian, novelist and screenwriter Robin Maxwell about her books and her work. Head to Patreon for all the details. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about women's voices from the past is Professor Susanna Lipscomb. Professor Lipscomb is an historian, author, broadcaster and an award-winning professor of history. She's also the host of the Not Just the Tudors podcast. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. 
welcome back to Talking Tudor, Susanna, and to all things 16th century women. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. It's a real treat to talk to you about this and to have seen everything that you've got going on in this uh, all things 16th century women. It's brilliant. Um, And I'm so pleased to see the focus on women as ever. It, It encourages me. Yes, I've been so looking forward to our conversation. So Maybe just before we we kind of dive in, would you mind just briefly introducing yourself to our wonderful listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and the work you do and what you've been up to since the last time you were on the on the show? So I'm Susanna Lipscomb. I'm a professor emeritus at the University of Roehampton, and I've written five books about the 16th century. So about Henry VIII, I've written a book about Henry VIII's Uh, last year of his life, really, his last will and testament called The King is Dead. Um, One about 1536, which I think was a pivotal year in his life, called 1536. One called Visitor's Companion to Tudor England, which a bit like your books in the footsteps of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII's Queens is looking at places around England and what they tell us about the, the Tudors. And although yours obviously go to places outside England as well. And then a little book about witchcraft and a book called The Voices of Nîmes, which is about women and sex and marriage in 16th century France. And also edited a couple of books, one on Henry VIII and his court, and I'm telling you everything now, and (laughs) one called What is History Now, which is with Helen Carr, which was uh, looking at E.H. Carr's famous work, What is History, from 1961, and asking 17 other historians to as well as us to think about what that meant in terms of what history is in terms of the discipline we work on and actually I wrote about women so it's kind of relevant to our conversation today and also I make tv programs and I have a podcast called not just the Tudors yes a brilliant podcast okay you mentioned your what is history now book I actually just ordered it and I cannot wait for it to arrive so I'm very much looking forward to that <laughs> I hope you enjoy it I, it was a real treat to edit it with Helen and we had such amazing people contributing to it. So I think you'll enjoy it, you know, thinking about things like why history deserves to be at the movies and how we write the history of empire now and natural history and all sorts of cool things. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Now, you mentioned there that you're working on a book about six fascinating women that you and I both love. So um, tell us a little bit about the book you're working on and what inspired you to turn your attention to the lives of the women who became Henry VIII's queens and wives and what continues to drive your work in this area? So I'm writing a book called The Six, A New History of Henry VIII's Queens. And obviously, I can see what's driving your question. These are women who have been studied and studied and studied and one would at first think what possibly could there be new to say about them it is my conviction that anyone writing history brings a new perspective to the writing of history so i think that from my experience of writing about fairly ordinary women in 16th century france and thinking about the sort of sources we have for them and what we can know of their lives and thinking about gender and how we understand it in the 16th century. And also my experience of writing about Henry VIII's court and understanding those sources. I felt like I was in a very good position in terms of knowledge and expertise to apply myself to looking at Henry VIII's queens. It's also true that the existing collective biographies, at least the more substantial ones, are 20 years old. And the research has come on leaps and bounds in that time. Also, I had a hunch that as a scholar who works on both France and England, the existing scholarship on the Queen's might be quite Anglophone, quite focused on English sources, and that I might find something if I went beyond that. 
and that was a hunch and indeed it has proved to be the case so I'm not just bringing a new perspective in the end I'm bringing new findings about these most studied of women because I've gone beyond the, the usual places. What drove me, I suppose, was this sense of thinking there's more to be said. I feel like the way that they're characterised and understood is not sufficient and often actually borderline offensive and that there is more to be done. And I was right. <laughs> and in terms of the question of what drives me to write about women, or I mean, they're half the population have been throughout history and often the least studied half and... Until recently, it has been men who have been at the head of the academy and deciding who should be written about, and we've had their perspective amply stretched across the pages of history books. And I think that it's time to see women's voices and telling women's stories. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have to say, I'm so excited for it. And I can't wait to, to read all about your new findings. I can't wait to finish it. <laughs> yeah, I know when it gets to that point. Absolutely. So talking more generally, and more broadly, I suppose, about women in the 16th century, what has your work revealed about the relationship between women and power? So obviously, at one level, women had very little power. Even if we put aside for a second Queen's Regnant or Queen's Regent or all those variations on Queen's having a certain measure of power, generally speaking, this is a society in which women can't hold public office, they can't hold office in the church, they, you know, they can't vote. They have very limited powers under law. When women are married, they cease to exist as a legal entity. Everything is in the name of their husbands. They seldom write their own wills because they don't own much and it belongs to their husbands. When they're married, a married woman can't legally make a will. Women largely couldn't write. You know, there's a we have a situation in which they are taken out of all those kind of public ways of, of exercising power. And yet, without overstating this and recognising very much it's a patriarchal society which thinks that women are more sinful than men and which stresses their weakness and operates to limit their power, we do have to get a kind of balance between patriarchy and agency, and yet we still find women coming to the fore and exercising power. That was a very long-winded way of saying what I'm trying to say, which is that women, <laughs> women do have power, but it's not through the obvious public channels. We mustn't overstate it, but we can see that they are operating often in tacit and invisible and silent ways to change things. And the surprising conclusion for me was in working on my 16th century French women that actually we often see them trying to operate and exercise their agency in ways that are vociferous and vocal and public, despite everything I've just said. So it's almost as if they don't know they don't have power <laughs> or they refuse to accept it. They are constantly speaking up and constantly trying to change things and constantly trying to exercise their will to reshape the world in the way that they want it to be, despite everything that's against them. Yes, I, was, I, I always love talking about women from the past because the, the theme, I suppose, that normally comes up is, yes, this is what was expected of them, but this is what they did. And there's usually quite a sort of difference between those two. Just an example, recently chatting with Professor Catherine Richardson about women of the middling sort, as they call them in the project she was working on. And you know, all these amazing insights came out of that women running businesses when they weren't supposed to be running businesses, women building these incredible networks when they weren't supposed to be doing that. And I just, yeah, I find that so inspiring and, and fascinating as well. Yes, my women in France were of the middling sort, which is a useful term 
for not imposing ideas of class onto the past, which are kind of much more modern and post-industrial. And it's absolutely true that we see them popping up in all of those circumstances and doing all of those things. It tells us more about the documents that survive and the sense that women were always supposed to be doing these things as exceptions to the rule as opposed to the rule than about the actual reality of the past to look at the stories we've told so far about women. Yeah, I actually thought about you quite a bit during that conversation because I remember when we chatted about your wonderful book, Voices of Names, that you, that you were telling me about the court records that, that you used as one of your main sources. And this was the same with this discussion that uh, a lot of the information came out of when things went wrong and when the women, you know, had to go in front of, of the courts. So there was that, and this is in England and yours were in France, of course, but it's very similar. Exactly the same sort of methods, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. I have to read it. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Obviously, you've you've studied um, 16th century French women, you've studied Tudor women. What have you found to be the main challenges associated with writing about women's history? The main challenge is evidence. I mentioned that most women in the 16th century couldn't write. Maybe 5% could, although we think perhaps more could read than could write because they were taught that first. So that even though they may only have been able to sign their names with a cross, they might have been able to read. That's a digression. But the point is that we don't have a lot of documents from women. I mentioned that they don't appear in many wills because they don't often have things to leave or because they're married and unable legally to leave a will because their goods are going to be disposed at their husband's pleasure. Also, because they can't write, we means we don't often have letters from them. We don't have diaries. We don't have the sort of ego literature, historians call it, that lets us have a glimpse into their interiority. And that's what we'd most hope for. So we look for them elsewhere and we often have what men say about them so often the scribes are, are male even when we get women's voices in that kind of mediated way through court records they're coming through men writing women's words down so that's one of the biggest challenges and this is true even of women you think you must have loads about like the six queens we have lots of letters by Catherine of Aragon actually far more than have been translated into English but we still don't know what she's thinking at crucial points of her life. We still don't have that deep insight into her interiority that we would like. With Anne Boleyn, of course, the situation is compounded by there being a, a definite programme of destruction. So there's lots of points there where we don't have an insight into things. And so much of the time, what we get about women, if they're being reported at all, it's their stories told by other people who might not be biased towards them and who are interpreting things in the worst possible light. So evidence is the chief challenge. And of course, this is very difficult when you're looking at the poor to middling sort, but it's also true about the rich and the wealthy. So given these challenges, given the, you know, the lack of evidence, why do you think it's still crucial that we continue the work and that we continue trying to, to, to bring these voices back? Because our history would be so much poorer if we didn't, and has been poorer for not telling women's stories. We, as I've said, they're Half of the people who have ever lived, a little bit more than half, were women. And it's women's stories that give us a completely new perspective on the past. So much of our version of history is that told by the powerful, who were generally rich and who were generally men. And that means that it is completely deficient in telling us the experiences of the majority of people. And we people reading history are the majority. Most of us aren't aristocrats or royalty. Most of us aren't fabulously wealthy. 
and we want to know what happened to people like us in the past. And we're just interested in them in their own sake as well. We care about these people. I care about the fate of Anne of Cleves just as much as I care about the fate of a woman who was made pregnant outside of marriage in late 16th century France and who had to deal with the consequences of the stigma and the shame and the financial penury that that put her into. Because we care about people. That's what historians fundamentally do. We care about other people. It's empathy, I suppose, but in a way that is very much funneled by the evidence and by what we can know as objectively as possible. And in terms of how women's history, I suppose, has developed and the writing about women's history, how do you think feminism, the feminist movement, has changed or shaped how we go about researching and writing about women's history? In all sorts of ways, feminism has shaped the writing of history. I mean, first and foremost, it means that we have women scholars. We have women in the academy or outside the academy writing history. And that is now possible because we allow more or less equal opportunities to women. And so women are asking questions about the past that men have not asked. I said earlier that I think each one of us brings our own perspective. And women are interested in all sorts of things. Women are interested in writing about battles and they're interested in writing about diplomacy, but they're also interested in asking questions about women's experiences in the past. And I don't believe that you have to have experienced everything you write about, but it's also, I mean, it's impossible, otherwise we'd never write any history. <laughs> I don't know what it's like to live in the 16th century and feel terrified that I'm not going to have another meal today or terrified that the plague is coming to my town. Though we have some perhaps parallel experiences with the latter and there's always parallels to be drawn even with you know recent live, cost of living crises perhaps. But I would say that it is different and yet having been pregnant or having gone through menopause or having experienced many of the physical reality that women in the past experience is helpful to writing about those women's lives. And also just caring about what they thought and thinking about them as more than biology as well. So, so often when people tell the women's stories, when men have told women's stories in the past, they have categorized them in ways that reduce them to their biology and make them one of a number of stereotypes. They're the whore or the bore, you know, or the sort of variations on that theme. And so feminism also has said, you know, that's just not good enough. It's not good enough to caricature all women in ways that make them either sexually exciting to you or sexually dull. There's more to them than that. And so I think feminism has posed a different set of questions and therefore we've gone looking for different evidence and in search of different answers. And we've been driven to that by our own agenda and by our own times and by the fact that women now are involved in the project of history. What do you think? Do you think it's more than that? To reflect on the questions we've been asking is so important. And I would also add the language that we've been using, which, as you've already uh, mentioned, some of those biographies from a long time ago, obviously, some of the language is, is appalling, it's shocking, it's, it's an insult to those women, really. And so I imagine that you've approached your your work with obviously all these things in mind. And actually, some of that shocking language isn't that long ago. What's amazing is the feminist movement, we could argue, has been around for well over 100 years. Perhaps you'd argue that in the last 50 years have been major advances. But even 20 years ago, some of the things that are written about women 
we would find shocking. There's been a lot of change in the last couple of decades. And also feminism has changed, for example, our discussions around sexual assault. Think about the Me Too movement and our definitions now in law of something like rape. In the past, when they were writing about women's experiences of sexual assault, which I think is something that happened to many, many, many women, still happens to many women. If you were writing about that in the 16th or 17th century, you would only be writing about women who violently protested and who shouted throughout the incident, which, of course, is not what most victims do. And our modern-day considerations about the nature of consent, that we recognise that there are circumstances in which consent is not valid, even if it's given, if that person is a child, for example, or if that person is intoxicated or asleep, or etc., etc., mentally incapacitated. I don't think that we should ever consider the past to be only seen through our eyes, but we inevitably view it from our perspective in history, and sometimes that perspective in history gives us new questions to ask, and it helps us think, okay, so female servants who were teenagers, who were in households of much older men, probably are going to be in situations that are deeply uncomfortable without it ever having been classified as sexual assault or rape in the terms of the time. And then we start looking and then the evidence presents itself. So the questions are important. I'm sure we'll talk in a second about how we have to resist letting the questions determine the answer, but I think they should at least set us up to think about what we want to know about the past. And just shifting the trajectory of the conversation just slightly to talk about objects and places and you know these this is something that i i love because of the emotional connection you can you can make with people from the past through these avenues but can you talk to us susie a little bit about the importance of objects and places especially when it comes to studying the lives of women from the past it's absolutely crucial to engage with what in academic terms is called material culture we might call stuff <laughs> objects and places so we've both written about places and tudor england and how important that feels and I always quote your line about how when you're in a historic house it's only time and not space that separates you from the people of the past I'm going to Hampton Court tomorrow and I always get that visceral thrill and it of course feels a little bit unscientific it sounds a bit hoodoo voodoo I'm sure it's just that science hasn't caught up with it yet but that sense that there's a kind of emanation to sound all sorts of mystical about the from the past that you know that feeling you get this shiver down the spine of being in those places it is intangible and yet it's crucial i recently went to the south of spain to think about where catherine of Aragon was living before she came to england and going to those places was absolutely vital to understanding her and thinking about who she was and how she'd been shaped and in terms of stuff i mean this is particularly important if we're looking at earlier periods I know so much can be known about early medieval women only, for example, through stuff, through bed burials and surviving objects. And that's how we know that they were women. <laughs> that's how that we know, you know who, something about them. But it's true also of the 16th century. And of, actually, of course, it's true today. You know, one of the great pleasures of my life is that I have a dressing table. I'm speaking to you in the morning. And so having been at my dressing table this morning... I have, I don't know, a little box that I got on honeymoon or I have uh, another little dish that was someone brought me, one of my best friends brought me back from Turkey or something from a trip to India. I have other things that are gifts. And for me, the objects that I come into contact with every day 
carry those resonances. They have that meaning. They tell you something about me and they tell me about my life. So if we're thinking about women's stuff in the past, if we look at an inventory of what a woman owned, and of course this varies greatly whether we're they're rich or poor, but we can start to engage with some of those emotional and cultural meanings of stuff. We can start to learn something about their interiority. We can fill in some of the gaps when we don't have the, that documentation that we were talking about earlier. We don't have the letters or we don't have the diary entries. <laughs> but we can figure out something about their perspective. Okay, back to Catherine of Aragon. We talk often about pomegranates and being the apple of Granada, this symbol of her youth, of the country she came from, of her parents, of their achievements, of her mother, of the sort of woman she wanted to be. And it's also true that she covers everything with sheaves of arrows, also one of her family devices. So if you're looking at something that she owns at her death and it has sheaves of arrows on it, it's clearly being created during her time as the queen, that tells you about what she's carrying with her and her memories and her formation and her mental world, I suppose. Anyway, so I think the stuff and place is just absolutely crucial and provides another set of evidence for women where we're missing out on so much that we'd like to know. Yeah, so true. And and I'm assuming you went to the Alhambra Palace, of course, when you were in, in Spain. Is that not the I most indeed. incredible place? The extraordinary thing about the Alhambra and the Nazareth palaces at the Alhambra, which is where I think she would have spent most of her time, many of the other things are later, is that it doesn't look that much from the outside. And then you go in and it is the most exquisitely beautiful place with these geometric shapes uh, that repeat and repeat and very soothing to the eye to look at and utterly detailed and utterly beautiful. And I think, you know, you compare that to some of the cutting edge architecture of the 16th century in England. And it just looks cumbersome and sort of blocky and crude by comparison. And here's Henry like, here's my magnificent palace. Welcome to my world. And she's like, really rather rubbish by comparison to what I know. Uh, and it just really, anyway, it gives you this sense of this deeply learned cosmopolitan lady who's been exposed to things that are far beyond the ken of many of the people she's meeting in England. Absolutely. And I think I went from, from there and not long after to Ludlow Castle. <laughs> it was like... Poor Catherine, that's all I kept thinking. Like, of course she was homesick. Of course she couldn't eat. Of course, like, really? You know, the, I don't think there could have been two more contrasting places, really. Absolutely. I went to Ludlow last week, as it happens, and... And I love Ludlow, Susie, by the way. I do love Ludlow. It's got a real sense. There's something magical there, too. But I just mean, you know, in terms of how different those two places are. Completely, completely. I mean, the town is beautiful and it's got amazing architecture and the, you can see the situation on a hill of the castle and it's fantastic and I love the chapel and I completely agree. And yet, in July, it was a very nice sunny day and it was still a little bit drear. And you imagine being there between November and April and we know we know what, a bit about what the weather was like. We know that when Arthur died, when they were pulling his funeral cart from Ludlow to Worcester, they had to replace the horses with ox and because it was so muddy, it was raining so much and the mud was so thick that horses couldn't pull the funeral hearse through and they had to put ox there. It just gives you some sense of, the, of how awful it was. And I always think going from sunny, the sunny th south of Spain, she travels up through the country 
And then she arrives at Plymouth in November. And no insult to Plymouth, it's a cool and happening place these days. But November 1501 in Plymouth, I think, must have been fairly, fairly grim. My heart does break for her. I think that must have been so difficult. Um, so I recently came across something that, that Dame Hilary Mantel actually said in a lecture. And this lecture is from 2017, so it's not, not a new one, but I think she has said this in other articles, actually. She said that writers, that women writers in particular, must stop rewriting history to make their female characters falsely empowered. And that's in quotations, empowered is the word she used. Do you agree with this? That's a comment from her wreath lectures, which are wonderful, and people should definitely listen to those about historical fiction. And I think it is chiefly a comment on historical fiction. Yes, it is. Yeah. And is thinking about how some novelists have written women of, say, the 16th century to be essentially 21st century heroines who just happen to be in a kirtle and a gown and who can operate with much more agency than the patriarchal systems of their time would have allowed. And she's completely spot on to call that out and to say that she doesn't think that that is right. I mean, she has very high standards for accuracy in historical fiction. We can debate whether historical fiction really needs to be as accurate as all that. There are different perspectives on that. But from Dame Hillary's point of view, it does. And so having a perspective that really just applies 21st century mores to the past is not good enough. If we're thinking about writing history, some of the same is true, right? We absolutely don't want to make, to suggest that women were more empowered than they were. Force is a key word there because it does them a disservice. It's a betrayal of their experience to suggest that they had all sorts of options and that they didn't have. At the same time, I don't think we have to always write miserablest accounts of women in the past that stress how downtrodden and oppressed they were. Let's take that as read. <laughs> Let's take it as read that they're in a patriarchal system and we have to keep reiterating perhaps that patriarchal system. And yet women still operated often as if they thought they had power. So we have to hold these two things in tension. We don't want to make them falsely empowered and yet we don't want to squash them beyond what was true. It's trying to feel out what we think is the truth of the situation as far as we can with the evidence we have. Do you think that ever gets easier doing that? Like you've been researching and writing for a long time. Do you, do you think it gets easier or is it something that's always a challenge, I suppose? I think it gets a little bit easier. I think it always remains a challenge, but I think that the more time one spends in a period, the more instinctual one's sense of it becomes. So I've now been working on the 16th century for 20 years or more and that means that I know a lot about its culture and its mores and its society. So I was working recently on some scripts uh, for a historical drama and this is all sort of non-disclosure agreement so I'm not going to tell you anything about it but um, I can read a script and say you know that feels wrong and sometimes I don't even know why and then I have to then I go away and you know do a bit of research and I'm like oh yes that's it is wrong. <laughs> they, I don't know, they didn't have des desks in the 16th century, say. Sometimes it's because I know something and sometimes it's just because I've spent so long reading letters no. and documents from the period and that just doesn't ring true, whatever the detail is. So I do think it becomes easier to kind of have a sense of where people are at and what the limits were. 
but people are always surprising. These people in the past are always surprising and we have to examine the actual details of their situation and so that the work of history writing gets harder. And and this might just be true of me, but I I don't seem to get easier on myself as I get older. I seem to hold myself to ever-increasing standards of, of exactitude, which means that my books take longer and longer to write. So it certainly is not always easy. <laughs> no, I completely, I totally agree with you. And that, I think sometimes that's why I marvel when, um, and this is not in any way a criticism, when historians write about many different periods. I just think, wow, like like you, I've been, I'm coming up to now the 15 years of, immersing myself in the world of Tudor history and I don't think I can ever write about any other period Susie I don't know I just feel like it's I'm still learning of course I'm still learning every day about this so I do marvel when people can write about different periods I think that's amazing truly I would love to try and write about some other periods but I think it's it's a a lot of work yeah. you know you've got to do the work <laughs> as yes. my friends I, got to, you've got to do the work and that means you really have to try and understand that period as well as you understand your primary period the period you work on most of all because I think that having becoming in sort of deeply versed in one period at least tells you what you need to know about the other yeah, one that's true right you've and you've got a set of skills about how to acquire that information the sort of evidence that's going to be available is going to be different the culture in which people are operating is going to be different but I think you know the questions you need to ask the thing I find the thing I marvel at is when people turn out books year after year you know it takes a year to write them or something I'm like how is that possible? <laughs> I'm the same. Anywhere. I must be the slowest like, person in the world is what I think. <laughs> well, it's probably just that you're quite thorough. <laughs> and um, so that's the thing that I find amazing. And yet, I mean, there are very good scholars who can do that. So I don't know. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, I, I need some tips. I need some tips from them. And just out of curiosity, do you read historical fiction as well? I do. Yes, I do. I just read a wonderful book called The Bewitching, mm-hmm. which is about the witches of war boys. So it's a historical novel by Jules Dawson and it's set in 1589 and it's a really, really good work of historical fiction. I also really enjoyed Rizzio, which is by Denise Minor, which is about the killing of David Rizzio, Mary Queen of Scots' secretary. So that's a really wonderful, very slim little book, very good. So I do read historical fiction um, and there's many more that I've read this year besides. I'm currently reading, for the first time at Helen Carr's suggestion, Anya Seaton's Catherine. (laughs) Ooh, I haven't read that one actually. I need to. Yeah, which is you know, which is a great classic. Some perspectives on women that are a bit problematic because of this, when it was written, but it's a wonderful read. And so I do. I also I also read a lot of history, of course. <laughs> I I didn't used to read historical fiction so much, but I enjoy it increasingly these days. But I will put it aside if I don't think it's any good historically. So well, that, you say you don't have to finish the book once you start it. I don't have to. No, I'm no, I don't believe in that. I think if a book is not good enough to keep my attention, I can put it aside. So Susanna, there's lots of our listeners that love, you know, women's history and want themselves to to research women's history and, and to write about this area. So do you have any tips for them after your 20 years of studying Tudor history and, and women from France, 16th century, um, you know, things to avoid, maybe things to learn, useful sources, that sort of thing? Okay, so many tips. So we've talked about court records as being a really good way into looking at ordinary women particularly because there are moments when things went wrong. So there was a moment of slander or a woman is pregnant outside marriage or their marriage itself is breaking down or whatever the circumstances are. There's a moment in which an ordinary woman will come and testify before some sort of court or tribunal. As you mentioned earlier, I've worked on the consistory, which is a sort of Protestant church 
moral tribunal, but the church courts in England are a good source. Sometimes criminal court, courts, sometimes criminal courts are a good source. Episcopal courts, etc., etc. That's one place we can find women in ambassadorial accounts. We can find them in their letters if they're learned enough to have kept them. We can find them all over the place. I mean, I think I could list sources for a long time. <laughs> but the key is quite often that we are reading them in other people's words. And so the challenge then is to read against the grain, we call it, which is looking into the silences and the subtexts as well as what is present. So it's thinking about what's not there as well as what is. And we need to think about how to use the snippets of evidence we have to answer the questions we're posing. Sometimes this also involves a kind of a deep contemplative reading of a text where we chew it over and we find all the ways that the source can go. We think about all the supporting sources that might help us understand it. So, for example, with my consistory records, I was also looking at notarial records, which give us things like wills and testimonies um, and give us marriage contracts. I was also looking at baptismal and marriage registers to try and find out the ends of some of the stories. That's another thing, actually, is you have to hold the fact that you're often not going to know an end to a story. So I was looking at synodal records of the church to see if any of the cases have made it up to the next level of discipline in the Protestant church, and so on and so forth. Uh, criminal cases, consuls, consuls were the people who ran the towns in the south of France, their records. Basically, there's your key set of records, and then you spread out and you look all around them to see all the places where these people might pop up. And that's also crucial in terms of not just finding the trail, but also thinking about kind of triangulation. So we need to look for data or evidence that might, might undermine our hypotheses. Um, we need to triangulate. We can't just go in search of our pre-existing answer uh, and then be looking to shore that up. We need to really be genuinely asking ourselves whether that is true, to sound all, all old-fashioned um, and not postmodern about it but I do think that it's absolutely crucial so this we're not running ahead of the evidence I think when you're looking for women too we have to wear lightly our 21st century perspective it is obviously driving our questions we can't take it off completely and yet we don't want to impose it on the past we think about what Dame Hilary Mantel said we don't want to get to the point where we're giving somebody in the 16th century the mentality of a woman today it just would be false and and this is a general point about writing history really but I would encourage people where possible to go back to primary source evidence to go back to the beginning it becomes so clarifying actually if you read countless secondary sources so what historians have written about a period and then you go and you read what we actually know what evidence do we have and suddenly the whole thing kind of falls into place and you see all the ways in which other historians have taken this piece of evidence and they've used it out of context or they have magnified its importance. Assumption creep is a terrible thing. You know, so let's say a piece of evidence the source gives you is treated with increasing certainty without additional corroboration. So it starts being possibly the case and then it becomes probably the case. And by the end of the chapter, it's certainly the case and other things get built on it. Nothing annoys me more. So I do think that going back to the, the sources where possible, within the confines of a human life, you know, we run out of time, there are things we can't do. But where possible, that's really important. And then it's worth thinking about techniques. So for some women, there is always going to be almost no evidence. 
if you think about writing about women who took the middle passage, who were enslaved, the millions of African women, for most of them, we have absolutely nothing autobiographical at all, a handful perhaps of sources. And the sources we have are encoded with violence. They are telling us about things that happened to those women. And so some brilliant scholars who've worked on that, people like Marissa Fuentes, Sadia Hartman, have argued that what we need to do is we need to shift our pronouns. So we shift, shift the perspective. I mean, this is kind of a technique borrowed from writing narrative history or writing novels, that we don't just see it from the perspective of the male observer and we turn it around. Gives us, Fuentes says, an alternative way of witnessing these scenes. There are ways in which we can ask questions of the past which are in the subjunctive, what might have been, what might have been said, what might have been done, without ever concluding that those things were done or were said, but we create possibilities where the evidence doesn't go. And actually, Sonia Hartman goes further and she goes into what she calls critical fabulation, which is a kind of speculative writing of the past, but based on and very firmly tethered to the evidence of the archive. And there's a lot more I can say about that. I write about it in my chapter in What is History Now? But sometimes for some women, if we say there's got to be copious sources, we are saying that we're never going to write their stories because for most women throughout history, there are not copious sources to tell us their history. And so it means that we have a choice between either writing anything about women based on limited sources or not writing them at all. Anyway, so there's so much more I can say, but those are some starting points, I suppose. No, they're wonderful insights. Thank you so much and wonderful tips. And there's me scribbling all those names down so I could go and explore all those other threads that you've mentioned. And I imagine that people are wanting to do the same and they're wanting to find out more about you. So where can our listeners go if they'd like to find out more about what you're up to and the work you're doing? I mean, I gave an embarrassing list of books at the beginning of this. So go and <laughs> find those or my podcast, not just the Tudors. I'm on social media at 16th written out capital C girl because this girl is obsessed with the 16th century so you can find me there and and I guess watch out on your tv box I might even be there some point so but I, I just love to hear from people I love to hear from you via social media or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Cameo or all these different places where I can get a sense of what you're interested in and and answer questions you might have and people's fascination with the past enthuses me and makes me excited and I love to hear about it so please be in touch that's wonderful and you are so generous with your time and I must say I always look forward to speaking with you it's always an honor and an absolute pleasure thank you so much again Susanna for joining us on all things 16th century women thank you Nat it is always a joy to speak to you well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music